Thank you for that gift, Christina and Girls Retreat. Girls, appreciate that. Looking forward to the ministry that will take place here this week. We have the Girls Retreat and the Guys Retreat. A little later we'll have a little prayer time for that. But um, it's always an exciting time. And I trust that you are praying diligently and have been praying diligently as we desire the kingdom of heaven to come here on earth and visit the hungry hearts and the hurting hearts that will attend these retreats. And as these ladies were singing that song, I thought to myself, perhaps there are some here this morning that feel like they're in the wilderness. You're going through this dry time. We have dry times in the Christian life. It's not all up here. But even in the wilderness, even in the times of barrenness, even in the times of confusion, God is there and things, beautiful things can sprout. Beautiful growth can take place. So God brought that song and those words just for you here this morning. If that describes you, wilderness, barrenness, life is confusing for you right now. God is there. He's in it and he desires to grow you. He desires to grow us as well as we pour ourselves into the precious words of Jesus. I'm so grateful that God saw fit to take the words from heaven and very carefully and meticulously preserve them so that we can have them today and not wonder, well, who said this and who said that? and What did they mean? And exactly how did it go and how did he say it? We have the preserved word of God in our laps this morning. So if you would turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. And as I looked at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, and began to pray over it and research it, I realized that there are really three great things, three great teachings in this chapter. And we've already looked at one, and we looked at that last Sunday, and I called that the great doubt. And we learned in the first 20 verses that even great people of faith can get to a point in their lives as they try to calibrate what God says and what God's doing with their personal experience and what's going on in their lives, even great people of faith can doubt, perhaps doubt God or doubt what God is doing. And that's what happened to John the Baptist of all people. This courageous saint, this courageous prophet began to wonder as he sits in behind bars or in the prison that he was in in that day began to wonder about Jesus, his cousin. Are you the one? And so we explored what causes doubt and we explored last week how to combat doubt. And there are two more greats in this chapter that we want to look at this morning. Because John or Jesus, when. The disciples brought news that John was wondering, is he truly the Messiah? Jesus was very gracious to John and he spoke well of John. But in the remaining verses, Jesus doesn't speak well of everybody. And so that's what we're going to look at. So the second great doubt in this passage would be um, the second great in this passage would be the great judgment or damnation that Jesus speaks about in verses 20 through 24. But before we read those verses. I just want to get our minds, uh, the wheels turning in our minds. When's the last time you heard a sermon or a great song or somebody's sharing about God with you? You somehow you were in the presence of a teaching and you thought to yourself, wow, I'm accountable to those words. I'm accountable to do something based on what I just 
heard. How accountable are we when we're exposed to God's truths? How accountable are we when we're exposed time and time again to God's truths? And is it possible that there's even a degree of angriness on God's part based on how much different individuals have been or how often they have been exposed to his truths and the the beauty of the gospel as compared to those that maybe haven't heard as much? How accountable are we? How accountable are we this morning based on what we have heard along the years about God and the invitation of the gospel? So, for instance, let's just say there's a 20 year old guy who was raised in a Christian home. His parents are strong believers and his family. He's he's been exposed to God and Christ through family devotions and he's been a faithful um, attendee of church because that's what his family does. And he's been brought up through the youth group and he knows all the Bible stories. He knows the gospel front and back. He knows where all the books of the Bible are. And all along for 20 years, he has been rejecting Christ. He has never invited Christ. He's never bowed the knee. How accountable is he? How angry is God at at this individual for all the times that God graciously gave him the path and he didn't take it? As opposed to, let's say, a 20 year old girl who, for whatever reason, has really never heard the teachings of the Bible, never heard the gospel, happens to come to the same church that this guy goes to. First time ever in church, the gospel's clearly presented and she rejects it and she walks out. How how angry, what effect do people's rejection have on God? Could it even be said that the mightier the work that we're exposed to, the mightier the word that we're exposed to, the mightier The wrath. You will recall in verse one of this chapter. Jesus had been teaching his disciples, but not only that, he had actually been teaching in the disciples hometown. When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve, he went on from there to teach and preach in their city. So that's where he is. And it's in uh, north of the Lake of Galilee. There are a cluster of cities all around the lake, but especially in the north part. There's a cluster of cities. And so Jesus has been ministering there for many, many months. He's been preaching the word. He's been telling the people about the kingdom of God. And he has been performing literally miraculous things. The blind can see, the lame can walk, even the dead rise to life. And so these groups of cities just north to the Uh, of the Sea of Galilee have been very, very privileged to have this opportunity to be exposed to God, the son and all of his kingdom power and all of his precious words. Very, very privileged. But that privilege in these verses actually turns in that opportunity turns into judgment based on their response or lack thereof. As a matter of fact, They are about to be judged, particularly for one main thing, and that is, though they were exposed to these things, they failed to repent. 
Verse 20, Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And so before we even read the woes that Jesus speaks, the message is clear. Jesus will condemn. Jesus will damn the unrepentant. When God comes to us, when his message comes to us, when we are privileged to witness something of the kingdom of God, when it visits us in whatever way, there's a responsibility that comes with it to respond rightly. And I'm sure, and we have already read, and we've been in Matthew for many months now, that the people were amazed at what Jesus had to say. They, were, they marveled at what Jesus could do. They were likely warmed. And thrilled by what Jesus was doing in this whole idea of the kingdom there. And yet remained unchanged. All those goosebumps. There was a time after I heard the gospel. I remember I can relate to this because I heard the gospel clearly. You know, you kind of hear it growing up in our culture Hopefully, prayerfully, but then I heard it very clearly, very specifically, and I thought to myself, eh, maybe true, maybe not, you know, and then but but, you know, the parable of the sower and God's word has a way for some to get in, but it got in and then it got to the point in my heart where I thought, yeah, it's true, but I'm not going to act on it. So just just recognizing that things are true or just recognizing, yeah, there's a God or just recognizing, yeah, the Bible's true and the pastor talks about it. My parents talk to me all about it. And my friends witness to me. Yeah, I believe it's true to to acknowledge it. Yeah, I'm a sinner to acknowledge it, to recognize it is just the first step. It's not far enough. I recognize my need for Christ and yet remained outside the kingdom. What is required, what gets us in, so to speak, through the atoning blood of Christ is, on our part, repentance. That's where the power to save comes. And we're about to hear some pretty sobering words. And I know they're sobering to me because Jesus reaches way back into the Old Testament. You know where the really wicked, evil people lived. The ones that were bowing down before, before idols. The ones that just did all this heinous stuff and they were bloodthirsty. Oh, it was terrible. And he reaches way back in there to that wicked age and compares some modern day people and basically says, uh, you know how wicked they were? They weren't even as hard hearted as you are. Verse 21. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Tyre and Sidon were cities Back in the day when God was bringing the Israelites into the land that he promised them and they had to 
fight hard for it. They were supposed to, to, um, to drive out all the wicked pagan inhabitants, and they didn't. They drove some of them, a lot of them out, but some of them remained tired and silent among them, and they were very, very well-built fortress cities, and they were wealthy on the, on the Mediterranean. They were up in the mountains, and uh, they had their own gods and their own belief system and their way of doing things, and they basically told the Israelites, forget it, you're not getting our land, you're not coming over here. We're going to do things our way. And they held out. And then eventually they kind of became friends and, and did business together. And lo and behold, Tyre and Sidon, they had mighty cedars in their forests and their mountains that they grew. And they even played a part in the building of the temple in that day because the cedars from this area were used in the temple. So they became aware, they witnessed the work of God among the Israelite people. They witnessed some of the miracles that he was doing among them, enabling them to defeat people against all odds and then build this whole nation, these people that were just slaves and rags. And here they are and they're, they're mighty and they have this mighty God. So Tyre and Sidon are witnessing all this. They're a part of that, but they don't repent. They don't join. They don't see the need to change God's so to speak, they stay hard, even though they were exposed to that. And neither is Capernaum safe. Capernaum. They're a little different. They think they're going to heaven. They're pretty sure of it. They're, they're, they're smug in their spirituality, in their place. They think they're all good. And here, Jesus, can you imagine, basically says, you think you're going to heaven and you're going to hell. They refused to repent, though they were warmed by the ministry of the kingdom of God that was so close to them and so near to them. And they were a part of it. I mean, they could see it. They could smell it. They could experience it. They could be a part of the crowd. But it was all stayed all on the outside and never came on the inside. And then as if that's not bad enough, look who Jesus compares them to. I mean, almost everybody has heard of Sodom and Gomorrah, except for the the, the uh, kid in Sunday school who once thought it was husband and wife. So there are those that get their facts wrong, but everybody almost has heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. And we know back in the Old Testament, I mean, that's the epitome of all things evil and wrong. That's where the lowlifes of lowlifes hung out. That's where no sin was off grounds. Everybody just, whatever they wanted to indulge in, whatever their impulses told them to do, carnal or not, they just did it. I mean, oh, it was a terrible place. And... The one righteous family there, the one righteous man there, Lot, warned them. He warned them that God was upset with this and wrath was about to come. Sodom. They never repented, though warned. Lot escaped. They loved their sin too much. And yet... Jesus says that if they had been exposed to what Capernaum had been exposed to, its fullness and its richness, they would have been on their faces. Talk about hard hearts. All of what Christ brought to them did not change them. They rejected it. They, they refused 
They kept it at bay. You can only go this far. I, I like this part of the gospel, but I don't want it any closer in here. And they're going to hell for it. How many of us today have opened our hearts to the blessings and the warmth of the gospel, the morality that it brings, the blessing, the order that it brings, perhaps to our families or our marriages, the goodness, the generosity that it brings. The church is a very generous place, a very giving place. And yet closed our hearts to the power of the gospel to save and The message here from Jesus is that if we refuse this, refuse the man of the message from heaven, that we will surely, woe is upon us, we will surely go to hell. And we thought we were finished the woes in Sunday school in Habakkuk, and yet we pick them back up in Matthew. God won't let us escape these. And woe is like, it's a pronouncement of judgment, and it's like saying disaster's coming. It's on the way, my friend. So with revelation comes responsibility. And to draw the wrong conclusion that, well, I'm, I'm real close to the presence of God and I've seen the presence of God. And yeah, the, the, the spirit is strong in my family and in my church. And, and he's there and he's there, but he's not here to, to, to draw the conclusion that we're just going to kind of slip in with everybody else. It's dangerous. And I think that's what Capernaum thought we can't make those assume assumptions just because jesus is in your parents and their strong believers just because jesus is in new covenant fellowship as we gather as the saints don't assume that he is in you there is a personal choice the personal decision there's a, a repentance that only we can do in and of ourselves that has to take place before jesus is in here And it's not just as we are so often enticed with today that Jesus is just one more thing to add to your life. Right. I mean, I I like I want one of those and two of those and three of these because I need this to do. And I need Jesus in my life. And he's not just a need. The Sermon on the Mount told taught us that it's not an additive, but we have to empty ourselves out before he even comes in. We have to bring ourselves low and see ourselves as The sinners that we are undeserving of his grace and mercy. That's when the the beautiful water comes into the wilderness. That's when the work of God is done and the gospel begins to grow. It's when we've emptied ourselves. And the more we empty ourselves, Jesus says, the happier you are. The paradox. I know that countless times that people have visited our church and To God's glory, they have said, Pastor, the Spirit of God is in this place. I don't know. Apparently, they're not used to it or whatever it is. Or maybe God just spoke to them uniquely during a time. But they'd say the Spirit of God is in this place. And yes, he meets us here. And he is changing lives. Faithfully, Sunday after Sunday, he meets with us as promised in his holy word. The Holy Spirit is already among us and in us. And he faithfully does this. And we raise our praises and prayers up through these cathedral ceilings in honor to give him glory. The Spirit of God is in this place. But don't assume that that means the Spirit of God is in you. 
There's a warning here. So how is it that some repent and some just grow harder and they're exposed to the exact same sermon, the same message, the same miracles? I mean, they all heard and saw the exact same things and some hearts were softened and warmed and just broken and other hearts were harder and harder and smugger and smugger. Yeah, I'll probably get in. I'm pretty sure I'm going to heaven. Verse 25, at that time, Jesus declared a little dialogue with his father. Thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my father and no one knows the son except the father and no one knows the father except the son and anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal to him. And I could easily and was very tempted to preach a whole other sermon about this because this is the sovereignty of God and salvation. Look at look at all of this. It's, it's like all of God all of a sudden. They're called to make a decision of repentance. And yet when it gets right down to it underneath of that is the sovereignty of God. Before you can receive Christ, he has to reveal himself to you. But I'll resist that temptation only to say that we are fully responsible under heaven to make decisions and our decisions absolutely count. And we do make them with our minds and our hearts and our will to find out that we made these decisions because of the supernatural work of God. It's that mystery. It's that the two truths that Scripture teaches, God is glorified in salvation. Salvation from beginning to end is a work of God. And He's glorified to save us by grace, but He's also glorified because He's holy and just to condemn the sinners that have not repented. Either way, He gets the glory. Because grace is being enacted or justice and righteousness is being enacted. But the bottom line here is that God holds man accountable and, and there comes times in our lives when we have to realize we can't pretend anymore that God's not seeking us. We can't pretend anymore that things aren't brought into our lives, but to get our attention so that we would serve the living God. Or pretend that we can play church or do the Christian thing without ever having performed that act of repentance where we empty ourselves and say yes. And not just need Christ to get you over a hard time, but you just want him all the time. You want him. You just want him. You love him. It's no wonder he was going to say very shortly, come to me. It's an invitation. Earth has a king. That's what Matthew's been telling us. Earth as a king. He came to the world as a baby. But don't mistake his power. Earth as a king that deserves to be worshipped and served. And we are accountable to do that. And so we can receive the woe. Or we can give him our woes as we find in this last great thing. And that is Jesus offers in this passage a great promise. A great promise. Come to me, verse 28. Very, very common scripture. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
For my yoke is easy and my burden is like you can almost is light. You can almost see picture his demeanor changing. Mid stride, he's he's condemning the unrepentant and then he, his tone just softens because now his mind is on another group of people. And these are the the ones who are just they're beaten down, but they want what's right. They want to be saved. They, they're tired of the life that a hard heart leads to. And they're weary. And he, he kindly and gently speaks to this group of people. So firm with the hard hearted and so tender with the hurting and those that see their need. And this is a common passage, I think, because it takes us right to the heart of Christianity. And it has that word rest in it. You can say that word, that message to any culture at any time, that this whole idea of rest, and it's just immediately going to capture your attention. Why? Because mankind is a weary man. He's a burden man. There's heaviness to life, no matter where you are, or what you're doing. And we always find ourselves in need of rest as a heavy laden people. Lazy people, always feeling like I need more rest. That's the answer. And then people that work hard and are very diligent. Oh, I just need a break. If I could just get a little short break, I'd be good again. Everybody needs this thing called rest. Augustine said, God has made us for himself and our heart is always restless until we find our rest in him. Jesus sees a downtrodden people before it was a sheep, a sheep without a shepherd. They're beaten, they're bruised. They're, nobody's leading them to that green pasture and the clear water. Why are people so tired? I mean, we sleep. We go on vacations. We, um, we pamper ourselves. Massages and everything. I mean, what everything the world has to offer to bring peace and soul. Why are we so restless? And why is it that Jesus looks at these people and sees such this such such a. Fatigue. I think it's because, of course, he knows that every human heart is always chasing after something. And that's why we're so tired. That's the thing about the heart. You can't really keep it calm because it was created to be chasing after something, to be seeking after something. And one of those somethings is to that that pace, place of shalom, that place of peace and rest. So every heart is busy, busy, busy seeking after whatever it thinks is going to bring them to the still waters. And we carry this burden. And, and it's even when we're lying at the beach in that peaceful atmosphere or in the bed at night and all the lights are turned down and the, everything is stopped and it's quiet. Our hearts are still going. Our minds are still going. And we're thinking about that thing that we think is going to bring us to the next level of peace. And it's very, very wearisome. And God knows it. And perhaps for a single person been there, you know, you're single and you think, if I just had Mr. Right or Mrs. Right, that's what my heart needs the most right now. It, it's so lonely. It's so 
tired. I just need this thing. Or perhaps it's success. If I could just get that job, my eye, my heart set on that job. It's set on that salary because then I could have this house and then I could drive this car and then I could have this set of friends. I can just see my heart at peace when I get these things. It's always after something needing rest. Severely burdened. And Jesus, in essence, is saying, I concur. And you will not find rest. No matter what you seek, no matter how close you come to it, even if finally you get it, you will only be restless again. You will not find rest for that weary heart without me. It will continue to search. And he knows that we're always trying to be something or we're always trying to gain something or we're always trying to, to achieve something. And we become enslaved to it. Work hard. We pamper ourselves. And we are need in need of rest. It's interesting that the health industry always has the next new thing or the biggest thing. And we've always heard about eat right and exercise. And actually it is like the wonder drug because it works. But now we're hearing a lot about rest. And the old school thought was just push yourself and push through those yawns and deny yourself rest because that's what productivity means. And now the doctors are saying, no, 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 wait a minute. No, your body really needs rest. And actually, you can be more productive if you get the rest you need. And then they found out that we need the REM sleep and that if you go to bed and you can stay in the bed all night. But if you hadn't had a couple hours of REM sleep, that deep sleep that physiologically the body needs, then then it's like you haven't really slept. You, you have to have that to keep going. Or you're really, really going to suffer the consequences. You can't think, think straight. I mean, it just it just tears our body apart. Timothy Keller says Jesus is the rem of the soul. If you don't have him, you can lay in bed. You can keep doing life. Do everything you can possibly to pamper your soul and to bring rest to it. And it's not going to happen. It's not going to deliver. Jesus is the rem. Of the soul. How does this work? You want this rest. Not like we think. It doesn't work like. Well Jesus is going to give us rest. By taking us to. That little island of paradise. Or that cruise. That's not how the rest. Works. He says in verse 29. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me. The yoke was that piece of farming equipment that the animals, the beasts of burden were well aware of because when the master gets out the yoke, it means it's not the yoke that's that big deal. You put the yoke on and that's not that thing. That's like putting a belt on, but it, it's what the yoke is attached to. It's the work that it's attached to. So you had to have the yoke in order to pull the plow, in order to pull the wagon, in order to pull the load. And yet Jesus is saying, I have a yoke. And I want you to come up under it. I want you to take it upon yourself. There's work to be done. But you have to yoke yourself to me in order to find the rest 
and the peace that you are working so hard to find. What does this mean? It's another way of saying, be my disciple. It's another way in that in that age, discipleship meant we do life together, like really, really together. You, you follow me er- everywhere I go. You watch, you observe, you learn. And Jesus is saying, I need to be the center of your life. In that day, you lived with your teacher. You lived with him. You did life with him. And everything was scheduled around that discipleship time and moment. And so in order to find the rest, to be Jesus' disciple, then we need to make him the center of our lives and do whatever Jesus does. Work alongside him, play alongside him. Wherever he goes, we need to be tomato staked to him. And he says, when you're tomato staked to me, actually, when you're in harmony with me, that's when the rest comes. Because you've emptied yourself out. And now you're about the kingdom. It's, it's agreeing to step under his authority. That's counterculture. Countercultural, isn't it? Because we are taught that you need to be your own boss. And freedom means coming out from under all these people that are trying to tell you what to do. That's what true independence is. And Jesus is saying, no, true freedom is when you come under my yoke and step in harmony with me. It's that or remain in bondage. Give up your rights. Give up this idea of freedom that you have of being strictly independent. It's going to work against you. Your your self-sufficiency actually works against you. That independent spirit can actually work against you. Come and work in harmony to experience the freedom. How do we get this rest? I like the way Jesus... In his gentle tone. So he handles this sensitive topic so well. I mean, he's talking about, first of all, he's talking about people going to hell. And now he's talking about how to get rest and coming under his yoke and letting him be the authority over you. And then he says, at that time, Jesus declared, verse 25 again, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. We, we get Christ's rest by coming to him as little children. You've been a child. Perhaps you even have a child. What does this mean? It means that you recognize you absolutely need Jesus to do anything. What the little kids do? Are they dependent on their parents? Mom, mom, mom. Where are my shoes? Oh, they're on your feet. Oh, mom, where's my glove? It's right there on your hand. Oh, they, kids can't do anything. They're completely dependent on mom and dad for things. Even they get tired of walking. Then you got they want to be carried. They want to be held. They want you to come in and pull the covers up. They can't pull their own covers up. You crazy. They can't get out of bed and get their own drink of water at night. No, I need. Could you get me this? Could you get they? But they realize that about themselves. And even if they've been rascals all day, they know mom and dad are still there and they can still just run to them. And right in their arms they are going to be scooped up. And this idea, Jesus says, I'm gentle. I'm gentle. 
It's almost like he knows that what he's asking is a big deal. Because not everybody is, is willing to come up under somebody's authority and just you have to completely trust him. You've got to trust that he is he is that gentle and he is that good. Well, we're not going to do it. We're going to stay back here. One of the things about our parents is we know they've seen us at our best and our worst, but they're always there. I mean, there's always breakfast in the morning that my bed is made or whatever it is that they do for us. They're just always there. They're good. And we got to know that about God or we're not going to give him our heart. And it's like Jesus is saying, I'm not going to abuse when you give your heart to me. I'm good, gentle. I'm not going to abuse you. And I know in the world you're used to people lording it over you, but I don't I'm the Lord that doesn't lord like that. You can trust me, you can come. In fact, you have to or you're going to stay anxious. What a beautiful message for us this morning. We have to see that he's humble. He's gentle. He is only good. And yeah, we can run up into his arms after a terrible rascally day. And he's still there for us because he's our good, good father. He knows it's hard to give these things up. He's there. So as we close, what, what are we yoked to today? What are we chasing after today? Something we're giving, we're giving our time and our energy and our thoughts and our, our anxious things. They're going to something. What is it that we want? What are we hoping for? And have we received the free gift of salvation. Are we under the master's teaching, doing community with him, doing life with him, making him the center? May God give us rest this morning and make us his disciples. May God bless the preaching of his word.